0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Bethon, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2023 Elul Learning Series, entering 5784, sustaining our learning in Elul, with Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. Also hello to anyone who might be listening to this via the Temple Beth podcast asynchronously, so I'm not going to guess what time it is that you're listening to it. I want to start with a question. Our topic tonight is, the topic of the whole um, season is we're playing with the word mechaye, giving life to, sustaining, like mechaye team which we say in the Amidah, uh, mechaye, mechaye hakol, giving life to everything. We're playing with that theme in a lot of what we're offering on the holidays, and so the title of this class is Sustaining Faith Within Doubt and Doubt Within Faith. But I want to start with a question, uh, and... It's going to be a little clunky. Hybrid is always clunky, so thanks in advance for your patience. Uh, When anyone who wants to answer the question in the room, you're going to have to pass the microphone around, otherwise people on Zoom will not hear you, and passing the microphone around will be quicker than me repeating what you have to say. Um, The question is, what does the Misha Berach prayer for someone who's ill uh, mean to you? If you say it or you insert a name into it, why do you say it? And what do you think is happening in that moment. If you're on Zoom, raise your digital hand. If you're in in person, raise your real hand. Jen, uh, Jen come get the microphone.
1: Um, when I say it uh, and I'm either say or I'm thinking of a name, it is a, a moment in time when I make sure that that person is in my thoughts and in my
0: mind. Okay, so it's a connection between you and the person who's ill, okay? Keep it because it's closer to there. Uh, Gary Marlies,
2: no, it's it's exactly what I was saying, but it's also something tangible so I can do. I need I need to do something, otherwise I feel it's a very, not something I can help with, but I, I want to try to get a connection and somehow, do something, and one of the way I can do it is offer a prayer.
0: Okay, so if I understand you collect correctly, it's kind of replacing the demoralization of being unable to help with a something. It replaces nothing with something. It reminds me of what some people say uh, the power of Shiva and the power of Kaddish is in a moment when you have no idea what to do. It gives you something to do. You have to do it. It's not that by doing it, it's magic and the person is brought back to you, but at least it's something. and It fills in the space and it it replaces nothingness. Michael, and then I saw a hand over here, then Barry, and then Carl. Sorry. I
3: think it... uh... Carl, keep it. It makes the name of the person in front of the community, in a sense. Even though you might be saying it privately, you're you're bringing it to a community when you say a mishaberach, and therefore it it has greater power, I think.
0: Great. So it has a communitarian purpose that it actually might let people know who's sick in the community or who has someone sick in their family, and it might uh, invite more comfort being offered great carl because you're the mic and then barry and then barbara we'll have a few more
3: so i was going to say too, the communitarian announcement one we already heard don't need to repeat it so i'll stick my neck out and say it invokes the cosmic spirit of healing and wellness and maybe <laughs> a little bit of that flows but otherwise wouldn't
0: Great. So it's interesting it took the fifth answer to say maybe the prayers about God, right? Maybe when we invoke the God who, uh, who blessed our ancestors and we're asking that God to bring healing to our loved ones, maybe we kind of want to mean it and actually do mean it, right? Maybe that the utterance of a bracha uh, activates the cosmic machinery and allows refuah to flow in a way that we can't fully comprehend, but is 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 substantive and real um even if it can't be proven right maybe in which in which case you might see where I'm going with this that the utterance of that bracha might be related to um kind of a sociological phenomenon in a community or it might be related to faith in a god who can heal Barry?
3: so a uh, uh, similar mode um uh... When I do a Mishabarak for someone, I'm a medium hmm. between that person's essence and the holy, hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm a medium for that, but going further um, in the in the way that we now do. Um, uh, 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 sitting uh, someone who's died and we have the what's the the group called the. Uh, Hever to to Hever and we, we now do remote sittings. And uh, so the, the, the person, wherever that person is, uh, doing psalms or whatever they want to do, uh, is acting as a medium between the met and the holy. Great. And, and since we do allow that, and so there's something magical, uh, we do believe this.
0: And that's, Great. Right. And uh, he used the word mate mate means the deceased, right? And it's great that you use the word medium because it, it may have been an unintended double entendre because you're saying that you are the medium, you're the portal through which holiness can flow. And, Medium is also one of the words that we have in the English language to describe people who, you know, who have little um, office spaces on the corner of, I don't know, La Cienega and Orlando saying, come in here and and, um, communicate with your deceased loved ones. And our initial reaction might be to like, you know, raise our eyebrows at that and that's a little kooky and someone's being taken for a ride. But when we participate in rituals like this, we're sort of leaning into the possibility that we serve as media as portals through which some divine flow can be present. Uh, Barbara, last one on this.
2: Well, as a physician, I I really don't believe that there's magic in getting people healed, except maybe through medications and surgery, et cetera. I do believe that some people, some diseases will heal themselves. <laughs> but I do feel that when I say a Amishabaric, that I'm, I've already previously talked to the person about whom I'm saying this or for whom I'm saying the mission baric. And I kind of hope that the ESP between me and that person is going through and, and the person understands that I care about them and hope that they get better.
0: Lovely, right? So even if you believe as a physician that it's mostly medication and the right recipe of of approaches to healing is going to do the main job of healing, you're still leaning into the notion that by uttering this prayer, there is a connection between you and the one who's ill. And by inference, let's just be logical, and that would mean that by not uttering that prayer, there would be less of a connection. Right? Let's just say that out loud. I remember when my father, he to live and be well, uh, was diagnosed with a terrible cancer, tw- I guess it's now 20 years ago when, my, um, when Javi was pregnant with Aiden. It was a cancer that we 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 had we had really no um, optimistic reason to believe he was going to beat more than a year. It was a new subdiagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma called mantle cell lymphoma. As a Yankee fan, he kind of liked having a cancer named for the word mantle, uh, but as someone who wanted to live, he didn't want that uh, subdiagnosis. And you know, met in bell curves that you know that talk about the unlikelihood of certain phenomena happening there are small numbers at the end of bell curves they're not nothing but they're small and he was in the very 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 uh luckily small end of the bell curve and 20 years later he's alive um, when nearly every person who was got got that diagnosis 20 years ago was dead within three years and i remember he he went through a, a terrible um chemotherapy and then an autologous stem cell transplant where they harvested his stem cells from his bone marrow and then basically eradicated his bone marrow and rebuilt it from scratch it was the kind of treatment that almost killed him but ultimately saved him why am i telling you this he he's always been a, a religious person um he's never had an orthodox faith he was my father was raised by a reform rabbi he really thinks of himself as a reconstructionist jew as most conservative jews are when they're when they're being honest with themselves. Um, and he never really believed in a supernatural deity. That was Mordechai Kaplan's, you know, puncturing of conservative theology was that um, our traditions are meaningful to us and, 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 and there is a notion of godliness in the world, but it's not a, um, it's not a being that intervenes, right? Which throws into question how we understand blessing. My father, to this day, believes that in addition to his phenomenal physicians, And in addition to this chemotherapy treatment that MD Anderson came up with in Houston, he got administered in Connecticut. And in addition to the stem cell transplant, 8%, I made that number up, but some significant percent of what allowed him to be alive as opposed to dead were the blessings that were said on his behalf in synagogues, in churches, and in mosques Around the Connecticut area, people who knew him, who asked that they could pray for him, every time someone told him that they were praying for him, he felt buoyed. He felt his cells strengthening. What's happening in all these moments, right? We we, we can never know for sure. But to say a bracha like that, and not just feel that you are engaging in utter silliness, it requires a certain amount of faith. But to continue saying it, when saying it has not healed your loved one, to say it for the next person when the first time you said it for the previous person didn't work and they died very quickly, requires you to confront a little bit of doubt. That simple, regular, religious moment that nearly every shul-going Jew has a relationship with is actually right at the center of the intersection, of the, I think, healthy intersection between faith and doubt. Faith and doubt, which sometimes seem to be perpendicular to each other, I think are actually uh, quite close to one another and require each other. What I want to explore with you for the next 45 minutes or an hour is are faith and doubt in essential conflict or in essential harmony, intimate friends that elevate one another and refine one another? And should our religious lives, which are focused on some level on a faith in God, should those religious lives be blessedly free from the existential doubt that can plague those who live without religion in in their lives? Is that one of the reasons why we choose to be religious so we are not plagued with that doubt? Or should faith in God, which we know can so easily be pushed to the extreme and lead to absolutism and extremism and hatred, should that faith in God, which can be harnessed for very nefarious purposes, should it be tempered with healthy doses of doubt and uncertainty. Which brings me to the Barbie movie. How many of you have seen it? Raise a hand. Barbie. Really? Only two of you? How many on Zoom have seen it? One too many. Huh, a few people. Okay. God, I was expecting everyone to have seen it. Oppenheimer? You're just not seeing movies? Is that what's, what's going on here? That's fine. Go, go out. Go to the movies. It's LOL. Go see a movie. Okay um uh my quick thoughts on, on on Barbie and how it connects to this theme did you see Barbie? I did see Barbie, <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to admit it I saw Barbie I wore pink socks um no, I didn't i would I would have, but I didn't um the Barbie moved me on some level and i and and to be very clear, I'm not going to talk here about a lot of the content of the Barbie movie. Not that it's not interesting or worthy or have a Jewish um, connection to it, but it's not what I'm going, I'm getting at. It reminded me in kind of the Netflix movie from about a year and a half ago called Don't Look Up. Did you see that with Leonardo DiCaprio? It was, it was a, uh, you know, a movie with lots of familiar faces in it that was um, going right to the question of a warming climate um, and impending doom for our planet and people preferring to go through the, you know, go through their lives willfully blind rather than confront the reality. My problem with both of those movies, in as much as I enjoyed certain scenes and I enjoyed the acting and I enjoyed the cinematography, and I and I'm moved by the um, by the content and by the ideology on some level of those movies, my problem with those movies is that they were a little bit too on the nose, too simple, too obvious too unwilling to allow subtlety and um, and layers into the argumentation which is one of the reasons why they were so darn popular. Those movies brooked no doubt. Those movies invited everyone watching it to be all in, I believe on the ideological statements being that were motivating those movies. And there's nothing wrong with ideology and there's nothing wrong with the ideology trying to save the world and trying to save humanity. I bristled at what I consider to be a certain fundamentalism, a certain faith in the principles undergirding those movies that did not tolerate, did, didn't, didn't permit the watcher to experience any kind of cognitive dissonance when I think, when you're dealing with issues of of power dynamics uh, and gender in society, if you're not willing to tolerate a little bit of cognitive dissonance, then you're probably approaching the issue far too foolishly. And if you're not willing to tolerate a little bit of cognitive dissonance when it comes to the state of the world and the in human beings uh, connection to a warming climate and how, what we should do about that, if, you're, if you are willing to allow yourself to be a fanatic about it, I think you're probably approaching it a little bit too f- foolishly. The thing that was powerful about those movies is that they were obvious, they were simple, and they sold. And what works in media works in religion too. And when I say something very strident that people have heard me say before in different settings, I have not a whole lot of optimism, unfortunately, that everything to which I am um, dedicating my life and work to, the overlap of a traditional and progressive and open-minded and generally liberal liberal and observant judaism will not be, have been for naught on some level i don't have great confidence that in the year 2150 there going a lot of, there'll be a lot of jews in the world like us i think chabad will be doing great and i think that the belzer hasidim will have five times as many people in their population as we do. And one of the reasons why that's the case and why fundamentalist expressions of Mormonism and fundamentalist expressions of Christianity and fundamentalist expressions of Islam are both so numerous and popular is the very reason why they are dangerous, I believe, and do something bad for the name of faith the kind of faith living that we're all interested in. Because there is something that is compelling about unwavering faith. There's something compelling about certainty. It feels really good. I remember I spent a semester in yeshiva when I was in college. Uh, Many of you know I, I, I had some credit before I started college. I did not go to a day school growing up. I went to public school and then a private non-Jewish school. I went to my synagogue Hebrew school and I got some private tutoring uh, so that I could learn some Hebrew skills. And we went to shul every week. I learned how to daven and how to lane by just being in shul. Uh, But I was in my third year of college and I was studying Jewish history and psychology and I had a semester to play with and I knew the Hebrew language pretty well and I was a pretty educated Zionist and I knew about Jewish ritual life and I'd never studied our text in the original. I'd never studied Rashi, I'd never learned a Mishnah intentionally. And so I spent a semester at a yeshiva in Israel called Yeshiva HaMiftar, sometimes referred to as Bravindr's Yeshiva. It was one of the more liberal and open-minded Orthodox yeshivot at, at the time. And it was one of the places where I was told you could go as a proud and out uh, conservative and egalitarian Jew. And as long as you weren't trying to impose that on them, you were their guest, that you would learn an enormous amount you learn how to study the tradition. And to this day, I'm, in, I'm incredibly grateful to my teachers for bringing me into this sea, into this ocean. Um, and you could be pretty comfortable, I don't mind saying, as a male, right? Where I, I didn't have the issue of whether or not I could be counted um, in your in your own life. And I was pretty sure that I would go there, a proud, egalitarian, concerted Jew, and I would leave there as a proud, egalitarian, concerted Jew. And, and not much else would change in my observance pattern, but I would know a lot more. There's a phrase in in the in the yeshiva world called "flipping out," right? Where you go and spend some time in yeshiva in Israel or somewhere else, and all of a sudden your behavior starts to change. Right? You become uh, very, very committed to a certain way of dressing. Uh, you, you feel very, become very committed to a certain punctilious practice of of, of halacha, which I have no problem. with, I have obviously no problem with practicing halakha carefully. You also ineluctably start moving in the direction where you question why everyone else is not doing it exactly as you are. I remember a conversation I had with my parents. I don't know if they remember this. We were driving from my cousins in Kfar Dimim uh, to Shalayim and we had just spent Shabbat there. And my parents uh, lived and live to this day a very involved and committed and educated um, uh conservative Jewish life, they were never Shomer Shabbat and never never pretended to me. I didn't grow up Shomer Shabbat. We the way I d- described it, is that we celebrated Shabbat. We didn't observe Shabbat, but we celebrated it deeply. We celebrated all the holidays. And I remember having a conversation with them, which at the time felt so obvious to me. And when I look back at, at it now, I look at, at it with some shame. I was pummeling them. Why? Don't they make sure they light candles exactly when it's time to light candles? And how do they permit themselves to drive to shul? And why haven't they? Uh, why has my father put on tefillin since the the, the chabadnik at the airport uh, um, in Tel Aviv uh, last got him to do it before a flight? In the moment, there was something beautiful and comforting and blanketing about the certainty I felt that my renewed faith in God was not only right for me but right with a capital R, and therefore that anyone who was doing it differently was doing it wrong. This is one of the um, pitfalls, one of the, um, the, tar, the one, like a tar pit aspect of the very thing to which many of us have committed our lives to, and that is the question of, uh, of how faith can uh, invade your thinking, that you uh, wonder if, if there's any room for doubt whatsoever. I think, by the way, that we have seen that in political movements in our era as well. Right? There are certain political movements that in some, on some level have become their own religions. And I want to be very clear. I think this happens all over the political spectrum. If you're certain that I'm speaking about one political expression, then I'm probably speaking about the other one right? or all of them. And It happens in America and it happens in Israel where a political ideology becomes an absolute The representation of that ideology becomes a God you start um, bowing down to it and having uh, unerring faith in it and having less faith in the complexity of humanity. I do think that we are witnessing that, by the way, um, Sam Harris, the great the great author and and podcaster, uh, he is a uh, an avowed and extremely articulate atheist, and I read his stuff all the time because I like reading things that push my own um, certainties. Um, and he's also someone who's deeply into into mindfulness and meditation. He talks about how many of the world's problematic and murderous movements uh, have been uh have been born out of religious ideology and when someone he said when he when he talks about that and someone challenges him and says what about nazism 20th century's most murderous ideology was Nazism. they were they were um proudly anti-religious they were um persecuting the religious they were a secular ideology the way sam harris understands nazism is that it was a religious movement that just didn't happen to have a um a supernatural god their god was hitler but there's no difference in the mechanics of requiring fealty and, and convincing the adherents that they're right and everyone else is wrong and being willing to die and being willing to kill. You're only willing to die and you're only willing to kill others, infidels, for something if your faith has no doubt. When your faith has no doubt, it's wonderful for you to go through life that way. It's often awful for almost everyone else around you. I wanna spend some time figuring out whether faith and doubt can be compatible. And maybe the reason why some people in, uh, who live their religious lives think it's incompatible is because they're misunderstanding what the word and concept faith are, and they're misunderstanding what the, con- what the concept of doubt is. First of all, I want to make a distinction between, and to this I'm grateful for my teacher, Amicha Goodman, the difference between having faith in and having faith that. You can You can substitute belief in versus belief that. When people get lost or get caught in their relationship with faith and belief, they're probably getting caught because they are on the side of faith and belief that are about creed, creedal statements, faith that so-and-so is true, belief that God does so-and-so. And if I question whether God does this or God is that, then all of a sudden I wonder if I have any faith at all. But faith in a higher purpose for humanity, faith in the world not being an accident and there being some divine uh, reality that we, is beyond our comprehension, but is worth our living our lives in service of is a different notion than faith that. And I believe that if you have, if you're on the side of faith that then doubt will wreck you or will end your faith because it, you're, you'll be in, it'll be impossible to correlate the fact that you're doubting certain faith and creedal statements when you've been asked to believe in something completely. But faith in is open-ended faith in is not ruined by doubt faith in is strengthened and thickened and elevated by doubt with that i want to go to the first source on the sheet um so open up the google doc that rabbi schatz gave to you Uh, i think i'm also going to share my screen so that anyone who's watching this afterwards on um on, on the zoom capture can actually see the text so I will it means I'll see the screen and I won't be seeing all of your wonderful faces on Zoom. I'll see some of them. Okay, it's almost impossible to talk about the significance of faith in our lives uh, without going to the 20th century's greatest prophet, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, in his 1951 seminal book, "Man Is Not Alone," which is really in four words, a wonderful um, distillation. Of his concept of faith. We'll get into his wordier explanation later. Man is not alone is a faith statement. But it doesn't say anything particular or specific about who that God is, what that God is, what they require of me, and whether God requires everyone to do the same thing. That's an interesting question. That's for individual religious leaders to figure out for their own pet, um, petitioners, for their own uh, participants. But man is not alone is his four way, word way of saying, I have. Faith, and I have room for enormous doubts about what that means. But we're not here by ourselves. This is an extended section of that book. The whole uh, extended section is called "Radical Amazement." One of the most oft-quoted uh, concepts of Heschel, and he refers to it uh, in this first paragraph. I'm just going to read it. I think it's going to be easier. Um, normally, I would call on people. The and and if you haven't studied Heschel, it's rich. It's hard every sentence deserves an hour of unpacking and there are a lot of sentences here and they're not we're not going to do them all justice but i wanted to give you this full, this pretty full section the greatest hindrance to knowledge is our adjustment to conventional notions to mental clichés in other words i think once we become enslaved to easy and lazy thinking and just the way people talk about things That's when our curiosity about the world comes to an end. On the other hand, I'm interpolating, wonder or radical amazement, the state of maladjustment to words and notions, parentheses, what a turn of phrase. Mostly we think of the word maladjustment as something we do not want to be in relationship to something about, right? He is saying you must have a certain maladjustment to all these normalized, and secularized and rendered banal words and notions in order for you to have a sense of wonder and radical amazement in the world. So radical amazement, the state of maladjustment, intentional holy maladjustment towards notions is therefore a prerequisite for an authentic awareness of that which is. Standing eye to eye with being as being English with Heschel's fifth language. Amazing what he did in English, standing eye to eye with being simply as being, raising being up as 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 a the loftiest of notions. We realize that we are able to look at the world with two faculties: with reason, I'll add, the kind of reason that makes us question and doubt and 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 rethink and be uncertain. We need that, and with wonder. Through the first, we try to explain or adapt the world to our concepts. That's a good thing. That's how science develops. That's how relationships have a chance of lasting. We're trying to use our mind to make the world make sense in a way that comports with our understanding of reality. Through the second wonder, we seek to adapt our minds to the world it's the opposite process wonder is this is the world this is what i have been gifted with how can my minuscule pusillanimous brain behold it a little bit that is wonder the doubt that part of the reason in the first part of the process doesn't undo the wonder and the faith in the second part they're just happening all the time in our one little mind Wonder rather than doubt is the root of knowledge, which again is an interesting turn of phrase because we'd normally think that doubt and curiosity is what pushes us to inquiry and knowledge. And he's not putting down doubt, he's just making a distinction between doubt and wonder, and I'm using wonder as a stand-in for faith and belief. Wonder rather than doubt is the root of knowledge, how? In other words, the business of doubt is one of auditing the mind's accounts about reality rather than a concern with reality itself. Doubt comes in not when I'm trying to actually learn more about what is real, but trying to figure out where is the, the gap between what I currently think the world is and what it actually is. And, and if I go down that rabbit hole, I'm obviously gonna get to some dead ends. and I'm gonna be in doubt, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it deals with the content of perception rather than with perception itself. And the content of perception is significant because that's the way a human being deals with the world. But it's one step removed from perception itself and his understanding of perception is simply, but it's not simple, perceiving the world as it actually is. That is the aspect of wonder or of faith. First, we see. We take things in, we discern. Next, we judge. Once we see something, we judge something about it. And we form an opinion and and thereafter we doubt. In other words, to doubt is to question that which we have accepted as possibly true a moment ago. You can't doubt if you didn't start with certain principles that you thought were true. I thought X was true. Now I'm wondering if X is true. Therefore doubt comes after knowledge. Doubt is an act of appeal, a proceeding by which a logical judgment is brought from the memory to the critical faculty of the mind for re-examination. Accordingly, we must first judge and cling to a belief in our judgment before we are able to doubt, but if we must know in order to question if we must entertain a belief in order to cast doubt upon it, then oops I didn't touch the screen then doubt cannot be the beginning of knowledge it's an elegant little proof that he did right that Doubt cannot be the beginning of knowledge because in order to doubt, you already had to have knowledge, which means don't rely on your doubt to be the thing that opens you up to the beauty of the world. There's nothing wrong with doubt, but that's not where learning begins. Doubt is your testing what you've learned. You have to be in a different mind frame to doubt than to be in the mind frame of faith or belief or true openness. Wonder goes beyond knowledge. We do not doubt that we doubt. But we are amazed at our ability to doubt, amazed at our ability to wonder. He who is sluggish will berate doubt, right? You might think, and I think he might be using sluggish here in the sense of someone who's spiritually sluggish, and I'll use colloquial terms, if you think you're very from, but you're not really willing to think hard on what your religious reality is, you might think that doubt is a terrible thing. I have no space for doubt, my community has no space for doubt, my yeshiva has no space for doubt, my religious life has no space for doubt, and my tzitzis has no space for doubt. That's sluggish thinking, no matter how um, you know, pr- uh, particular you are about your herchers. He who is blind will berate wonder, right? Be- in other words, if you are saying that wonder has no space because all you are is a rational person who judges and doubts, then you're actually blind to what the world has to offer. Doubt may come to an end. Wonder lasts forever. Wonder is a state of mind in which we do not look at reality through the lattice work of our memorized knowledge, right? Kind of rote memory. Heschel had an encyclopedic command of the rabbinic literature, but he didn't rely on that. that, wasn't, that, that was, those were the accoutrements to his faith. But his faith was something enormously bigger than that the lattice work of our memorized knowledge that's impressive you have to know the tradition to be able to wield it but that's not what wonder is in which nothing is taken for granted spiritually we cannot live by merely reiterating borrowed or inherited knowledge boy do we do that all the time and that happens more in a firmer zone where it's considered to be a triumph to repeat by heart what Rashi said a thousand years ago. I love studying Rashi. I love having Rashi break open a verse for us. But it's not the apex of religious life to know Sforno's commentary on the Torah by heart. But in some parts of the religious world, it's been upended, and that becomes the apex of a life of faith, not according to Heschel. It will tell you only nothing is taken for granted. Each thing is, sorry, I skipped a line. Inquire of your soul, what does, what does it know? What does it take for granted? It will tell you only no thing is taken for granted. Each thing is a surprise. Being is unbelievable. We are amazed at seeing anything at all. Amazed not only at particular values but and things, but at the unexpectedness of being as such, at the fact there's being at all. The paradox here is that the religious life can be a veil. Can occlude the thing that religious life is actually trying to get us to. Religious life and observance and building a sukkah and shaking the lulav and and preparing our home for Shabbat, which are things that I all I all believe in. All of them. They can be the portal to a religious life and the obstacle that's getting in the way of our actually living a life of faith because since we're focusing on these particulars, what we're not focusing enough on is, I'm alive and that's extraordinary. That's a faith statement. Those of you who come to Daily Minyan or come to shul on Shabbat Or love hearing Avinu Makenu on on high holidays. I'm not poo-pooing any of those experiences. But how many times are those experiences lifting you off the page, getting you to a place of wonder simply about being? Not wonder, about how nice that tune is, how great the harmony is, how sitting in the round really changes the davening, right? Wonder simply at being. If we're not getting to wonder simply at being, then we're not allowing faith to operate on a level that it's supposed to according to Heschel. And we're and we're misunderstanding what faith is, which is why we might think that it is incompatible with doubt now that was chunky and thick and let me pause for a second for comments and reactions to uh, what Heschel said, and what I said about what Heschel said. Irv. let's take the microphone.
3: yeah I want to take us back to the first thing what you said about the mission Bayrach. okay what it gave me and it relates to this is a sense of gratitude gratitude for for people who show up to Dominion uh, It's one of the reasons why I come I went through two cottages, my dad and mom people were there for me I'm there for them so if you look at at that gratitude I have gratitude of the washing machine because I learned what it takes when you don't have a washing machine by reading Caro's book I never experienced it, explaining a lot of people in the hill country spent hours and hours just washing clothes and suffering to do that. So when, when it washes my clothes, I have gratitude. So it's the gratitude, I think that changes the need for looking at the minutia of what constitutes a religious life to what it's supposed to be.
0: Wonderful. And Irv, I'm thrilled that some or maybe even many of your experiences in prayer open you up to that. It doesn't happen for everyone. It doesn't happen to be every single time. Right. But if it happens some of the time, that's that's a pretty good it's a pretty good batting average. Um other hands in the room, Barbara.
2: Um this this takes me back about sixty-five years to what has what was the most significant sermon that I ever heard. It was on Yom Kippur. The most
0: significant sermon you ever heard was not in the last 14 years?
2: Nope, not at all. Sorry about that. It was Rabbi Saul White in San Francisco at Beth Sholem. Uh, his son is actually a classmate of Joel Rembaum's from rabbinical school. And his, the sermon was titled about, do you have to believe or is faith enough? And this, this whole thing takes me back to that. I mean, I was a 20-year-old college student or 22-year-old you know, medical student. I don't know exactly which year it was, but it was a long time ago. And, and it was really important to me because he stated, you don't have to believe something. As he said, scientists can't believe something they can't see, but having faith, you can have faith that, that there is a God. You can have faith in things that have gone on in the world, but you don't have to necessarily believe what you can't see. And that's okay. And, and, this really takes me back there and makes me feel good thanks barbara
0: anyone else on heschel before we pivot yes kathy can someone kathy the microphone jennifer you're getting your steps in today
1: i think the um having faith that or having a, a feeling that something connected had in several ways for me. And one, Barbara was talking about going back. When my grandmother was sick and I went to see her in the hospital and I went home, I knew something, it wasn't gonna be, it was gonna be soon that she was gone. And that night we got a call and I was in the den and I got the call. that feeling of why did I go to see my grandmother that day she wasn't she didn't wasn't oh, uh, a conscious I mean she was conscious but she didn't know anybody why why did I do that and and it happened at the right time when I was teaching in Madeira at a non-jewish area in high school I was a high school teacher I went to show three times on Friday night. The first one, the women said, come back, we have men. You'll see them. The second one, nobody was there. I said, Okay, I'm gonna give it one more time, Hanukkah night. I met Barry. What you know there's something beyond me. That's uh, the faith I have in. Yeah. Um, You know, as teenagers, we it was uh, you know it was like there's no God, but everything around us is God. I don't I don't know if it's everything around. I don't know. There is something beyond my understanding of why things happen. Yeah. And I guess that curiosity, that wonder, will I ever get to know? any you know any of that will it be after that's what i think keeps my faith my faith and and the traditions of doing keeps me tied to being able to continue wondering yes without having shabbat without having community would i ever think about it again i don't know i mean if i didn't have the community would i have met you know so it it's tied to that faith in and faith that is is the amazing part
0: that's wonderful kathy right so you're you're, you're positing that that faith is a or universal human experience and religion is a particular expression of it the thing that keeps you in the game right so Right, I, I, I have faith that man is not alone; that there's something beyond me. And I commit, as a result of that faith, to a certain set of practices that I've inherited. That I could have inherited a different set of practices depending on where I was born and who, who raised me, and that is the particular way I act out a life that might keep me in a faith relationship. Right, and I've shared this many times. It's very similar to what uh you know monogamous human relationship is right i have faith that there's something called love which is a grander way of living than if you lack it and i've chosen a particular person to bestow that love upon and to receive it from might i doubt that there might have been someone else in the world with whom i also could have shared that if if i don't doubt that i'm lying to myself or to you but my commitment is to express it in this way with this one person, so that hopefully the notion and the feeling of love will continue to be present in my life. There are a lot of associations between faith and with love, and it also talks about, I've been thinking a lot recently about my relationship to Elohe Yisrael and Am Yisrael, the God of Israel and the people of Israel. I don't have any doubts about Am Yisrael, about the people of Israel. I have doubts about where we're going and and our status. I don't have any people, any doubts that we're real, that we deserve to exist, that we deserve to have our our lives and our rituals, that we deserve to have a a state where we are the majority. I I have questions about what transpired in the desert in between Egypt and Canaan such that the people of Israel became wedded to the God of Israel. But I have no doubt that our ancestors who lived in the land of Canaan 3,000 years ago were actually our ancestors, and they bequeathed to us um, a set of practices and that we are part of that nation. I have enormous doubt about Elohim Israel. I'm a rabbi, I'm an Idavid and I'm a teacher, and I'm committed. I have enormous doubt about who, what, where, why, once I start thinking of a god of a particular people, or the god that we, that we have named that we believe is the god of the entire world, but we have a special relationship with it's possible, I believe, to um, live with utter faith and conviction in being attached to the tribe and the nation and the people who have expressed their religious life through a, a, a faith that is sometimes present and sometimes shaky in the God of Israel. And uh, those two things can, go, can coexist. And I think that that kind of healthy doubt is a bulwark against uh, fundamentalism and against absolutism. And sometimes I wish that more people. Just wait for one second. That's, that's okay. She's trapped. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. Okay. A phone was going off in the room, it's okay, it's okay. Thanks for all. And I wished that more people who waved the banner of faith evinced more doubt to make room for others who don't live lives exactly as they do. And having said all of that, I do want there to be a notion of God in my practice. I wanna simultaneously divorce God from my practice and fill my practice up with God. Why do I wanna divorce God from my practice? Because they're different things. God is my faith that I'm not alone. Practice is my way of expressing that I have a commitment as a, Jew, as a Jew. They're connected, but they're not the same thing. I want to divorce it so that I never think that when I'm doing a particular halachic act, I'm doing it because God wants me to do it that way, and God doesn't want anyone else to do it differently. I want to divorce God from my practice so that I don't become haughty. I don't become judgy, even though I have to make judgments all the time about what our synagogue permits and prohibits I want to divorce God from practice so i'm never willing to harm someone. For my practice or berate someone for their practice and I want to infuse my practice with God so that i'm not just a member of a club and i'm not just a member of a team that decided what its own rules were and that. My expression of Judaism and my ritual practice can have something lofty attached to it. I had this conversation, debate, machlok, and argument for months and months and months with one of my teachers, Professor Moshe Benevitz, who's a professor of Talmud and Halakha at the Schechter Institute in Jerusalem, where I studied for a year as part of my rabbinical studies an incredibly knowledgeable um, man and gifted teacher, grew up in the Orthodox community in Riverdale, New York, made Aliyah, and I don't think he, he doesn't really care about denominational labels, but for all intents and purposes, he lives as a, a very observant egalitarian Masorti Jew and teaches at the conservative rabbinical school in Jerusalem. We, I remember walks up and down Jerusalem where we talk about this, where I would say, you know, Moshe, when I put on tefillin, And when i kiss the mezuzah and when i figure out if this is kosher or not kosher and when i check to make sure three stars are out before i doing havdalah i have no idea if behind any of that there's a god who expects that of me but i'm still willing to do it and i want to do it and i'm driven to do it and i'm 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 it's it's a magnet for me to do it because it's the only way for me to stay in the conversation about whether or not there's a god in the world but I don't know if those moments God is listening. And Moshe would get angry at me, not really angry, but like, you know, in a battle of me. He would say for him, it's all about God. Why do it, Adam, if it's not God? Why get up and go to Minion if God doesn't want you to? Why be committed to a certain limited practice if there's not some divine plan that you are acting out? We had this machloka 27 years ago, 26 years ago, and I'm still in the midst of it. And I think that's a good thing because I think that's a thing that keeps you in a um, a rhythm of practice that connects you to your am, to your people, and keeps the question of God alive in your mind without allowing you to slip into problematic certainty. Look at the next sources. This is um, Masechet Brachot. First tractate of the Talmud, page 32b. Rabbi Hanina said, it's an oft-quoted line, but it's not often quoted what comes after this line. Everything is in the hands of heaven, which is Talmud speak for everything is in God's hands. Except for fear of the heavens, which is, Talmud speak for fear of God. It's a lot in six words. It's basically saying, God is omnipotent. God foresees the future. God controls the world. There's one thing that God doesn't control, that God can't control, and what is that? Whether or not you believe in God. It's a fascinating construction, right? So the God is the most powerful being in the world and the most powerless being in the world. The most powerful being in the, God, in the world because God controls everything except your ability to know or to say whether or not God is in the world. And if you don't know or say that God is in the world, then is God really in the world? The Talmud, I believe, is struggling with some of the questions that we're dealing with today um, and trying to figure out how you ex- exercise your human faculties to bring yourself to the faith in the very God who controls everything except your faith in that God. Shinamar, as it says, a quote from the thirty, from the tenth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. It says, "Now God says, uh, now Israel, what is it that God asks of you except for?" Um, awe or fear, which is understood syntactically to mean the only thing God is asking of you is faith. Everything else God controls, right? So that's not really what the verse means in context, but that's what it means in, in the Midrash, right? That is it to say there's only one thing that you really need to do to exercise your religious life that God can't control for you, and that is whether or not you believe in God. That's the proof text that Rabbi Hanini uses. Okay, then the Talmud has a really interesting conversation on that. Is fear of heaven, which is another way of saying faith, such a small thing? What does that question mean? The question is responding to the part of the Talmud that says, there's only one thing that God asks of you, and that's having faith in God. Talmud says, well, that's a pretty big one thing. Is, it, is, is faith in God such a small and minor thing that it could be the one small thing that God asks of you? Bahama Rabbi Khanina, but that same Rabbi Khanina said, Mishum Rabbi Shuman Ben Yochai, in the name of Rabbi Shuman Bayochari, Ain lo Hakadosh Barakhu, the Beit Gnazav, El Otsar, Shall The thing that mostly fills God's supernal storehouses of great holy stuff is the fear of heaven. This teaching by Rabbi Hanina suggests that the fear of heaven is extraordinary, is grandiose, is the biggest thing in the world. It's the thing that fills God's storehouses. So how can it be the thing that fills God's storehouses if God's in control of it? And the, the, the one thing that human beings actually control. The proof text, a verse from Isaiah that the fear of God, that is God's treasure. The word otsar can mean treasure. It can also mean storehouse. That's how the pun works in the Talmud. And then the Talmud responds to its own question. Is it possible that the question was that, that the fear of God could be such a small, minor middling thing when the Talmud elsewhere says that it's the biggest thing in the world? In, yes, it's very problematic that the word that the letters aleph, yud, nun mean yes and no. Ein means no. In means yes. It took me a long time, Yeshua, to figure that out. In, yes, it's true. Legabe Moshe milte Moses is the one speaking in that verse in Deuteronomy, and Moses was a paragon of faith. Moses had great Yerachimayan. So for Moses to speak about faith, he could say, "There's only one little thing that God is asking of you, and that's having faith in God. That shouldn't be so hard." Because for Moshe, it wasn't so hard, at least according to the rabbinic imagination of who Moses was. De'ama Rabbi Khanina, because again, Rabbi Hanina said, so he's getting a lot of play here. Mashal Adam, this can be compared to a person. Someone asks a person for a great vessel, a huge vessel. Well, the person has it. D'me'alav kekhli that seems like a small request. If I asked you for $50, and you only have ten. I'm asking you for an enormous, impossible thing. If I ask you for a thousand dollars and you have two million, it's nothing. Right? If I'm baking a cake and you're my next door neighbor and I need three eggs and you only have two and you are going to use at least one of them for your own cooking, then my asking you for three eggs is an enormous thing. But if you have an egg farm and you have more eggs than you know what to do with, then my asking you for three eggs is a nothing. And then the Talmud continues but if you ask somebody for something small and they don't have it, it's as if it's a great and large vessel. In other words, to Moshe, who, for whom faith was abundant,
3: having a little faith
0: is not a small, it's not a a big thing, it's a small thing. To us, it's an impossible thing. It's the grandest thing that we can possibly imagine. It's the thing that we have a taste of it, a whisper of it. Our lives feel bigger and elevated for that moment and then it's ephemeral and it's gone because we do not live on the level that the Talmud imagines that Moshe lived on. I think this is the Talmud's way of saying that faith is critical and faith is impossible. Faith is is accessible and faith is inaccessible. Believing in God is the only thing that God asks you to do. Believing in God is an impossible thing to do. Believing in God is the central way of being a Jew. Don't feel so bad if you have a hard time believing in God because not everyone can get to it. So go do a mitzvah instead. Our spiritual ancestors were grappling with this. And when the work of our spiritual ancestors is reduced in such a way that suggests that having unwavering faith in God and that unwavering faith in God pushes you to an unwavering Jewish practice, I think that is a a limiting, a minimizing, and maybe even a bastardizing what our um, our forebears really wanted from our Jewish lives. Uh, we did Heschel. We did Talmud. I want to finish with a Christian theologian, Philip Yancey. He's an author, theologian. Uh, I had not uh, come across him until recently, um, and he's got a lot of interesting things to say about faith and doubt. And even though his practice of religion is different than ours, right? That's fine. He doesn't celebrate Purim. I don't celebrate Ash Wednesday his ruminations about faith for a religious person are evocative and accessible. Why should we not listen to and learn from someone whose particular expression of religion differs than ours, but who's wondering about the very things that we're wondering about, the very wondering that makes us want to stay religious, we have something to learn from. Inquisitiveness and questioning are inevitable parts of the life of faith, parentheses. Some people I meet in the conversion process say the reason why they fled Christianity and came to Judaism is because they believed they were confronting a Christianity that was not permitting of inquisitiveness and questioning. So I think Philip Yancey is a, particularly, a particular kind of Christian theologian, and I'm obviously attracted to him, but it's not necessarily the dominant theme in evangelical Christianity or even with Roman Catholicism. Where there is certainty, there is no room for faith. That should be, I would like that on my tombstone, if any of you are around when that happens, right? Because it's pushing against the orthodoxy, and I'm using that term with a double entendre, that faith requires certainty. Uh Uh-uh. Where there is certainty, there's the no room for faith. Because if you're certain about something, then you don't need, I don't need to be, have faith that there's gravity. I'm certain there's gravity, right? I don't need to have faith that one and one equals two. I, I'm certain about it. So I want my certainty to be in different realms than my faith. I encourage people not to doubt alone rather to find some people who are safe doubt companions. Hello, here we are, right? You're all coming out of the closet tonight. And also to doubt their doubts as much as their faith, lovely turn of phrase, but it doesn't help simply to deny doubts or to feel guilty about them. Many people after all have been down that path before and have emerged with a strong faith. In other words, your doubting relationship about the God around whom and around whose laws you are organizing your life, your doubting does not necessarily mean that you are inevitably leaving the the path and leaving the community. It actually might be that through that doubt, you get to what um, some of the, I think it's Tillich calls the second naivete, right? A a renewed understanding of what a faith relationship in that God can be. Sometimes the faith is stronger on the other side of doubt. I see faith not so much as an intellectual ascent, to a series of concepts, faith that, but as a relationship with a living God, faith in. Feelings deeply affect every relationship. For example, I've been married for decades. Name any feeling, good or bad, and I've probably had that feeling toward my wife. Yet the commitment to marriage binds me to her regardless of the feeling of the moment. This I think is what Kathy was saying before about God and her commitment to religion. I confess that there are also times where I have to act as if I love her when the feeling lags. That's normal. I believe in any long-term relationship. I tell every wedding couple that I work with that if I only put on fill in the mornings that I woke up replete with the faith in the creator of the universe and the God of, of Sinai, I'd put on fill-in occasionally, not every day. If I only kissed my children in the moments, that I was overflowing with tender pa- compassion for them they would be emotionally malnourished right sometimes we rap and sometimes we kiss a mezuzah and a child and a spouse and a friend in order to reawaken the feeling and the faith that was there recently but I can't find it in this moment but maybe by acting in that way I will bring it back We looked at how, and we'll end with this, how in the Talmud um, in 2,000 years ago and in Heschel last century and in uh, Yancey this century, there seemed to be um, a healthy tug of war or dance between faith and doubt. I think it goes back even to the Tanakh. Many of us know Psalm 23, right? The Psalm that we say at funerals, the Psalm that calms our doubts, the Psalm that makes us feel that with God next to us, we are lying in green pastures. Adonai, lo Echzar, God is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'm protected. I'm taken care of. God is there. I'm not alone. I have someone to rely on. The footsteps poem, etc. That's Psalm 23. Look how Psalm 22 begins. Previous Psalm. Eli, Eli. Lama Azavtani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I'm all alone, God. Rachok yeshuati, Divrei Shaagati. You're so far from my feeling your power to deliver me you're so far from my roaring leash og is the sound that a, uh, a lion makes div Shagati. how could that be that simultaneous that um, consecutive psalms are representing the utter presence of faith and the utter absence of it the sense that with god i can never be alone and the sense that i'm trying so hard to feel god and you're not there I don't think it's an accident that Psalm 22 comes just before Psalm 23. And although I understand why we quote Psalm 23 more, because it feels good to utter it and try to, be, try to imagine the person who wrote that Psalm and feel maybe we can attach ourselves to that faith, we might feel more uh, of a connection to the author of Psalm 22, who wandered around the world wondering, is there a God? I know Shabbos is coming, but is there a God? I have to shop for Pesach, but is there a God? The Hanu need to be cleaned out because because they're still waxing it from last year, but is there a God? It's okay. And as we enter into this heady season, will there be a lot of God talk, and a lot of praying, a lot of trying to reach towards something lofty and a lot of focusing on things that are very this-worldly, a lot of organizing meals, and also trying to enter into a spiritual realm so chuva as possible. Allow yourself to believe, allow yourself to question, allow yourself to have faith in, and allow yourself to doubt, and allow them to dance with one another. Shana Tova. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles.